Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. And now, a reading from Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after the sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place, where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. Uh, welcome to Digital Church. My name is Michael Rodzina, and uh, we're so glad that you've joined us, and I'm excited to introduce you to our guest preacher for the day, Dr. Chris Green. Dr. Green is a dear friend. The first sermon that he preached at our church was a, an odd week where I came uh, down with a pretty severe sickness and uh, reached out to him because he happened to be in the city, and he preached probably one of the best sermons ever to be preached in our church on uh, almost no notice. And so that's the kind of person that Dr. Green is. He's the professor of public theology at Southeastern University. He's also the director of the St. Anthony Institute of Theology and Philosophy. Um, he, uh, by the way, I've taken part in that uh, order and highly recommend the work that they're putting out into the world. Um, he's done a number, uh, written many books. Uh, one of his most famous books is called Surprised by God, uh, along with other academic works, including The End is Music. He has a book coming out later this year called All Things Beautiful, and so we want you to be on the lookout for that. He lives currently in Tulsa with his wife, Julie, and their three children, Zoe, Clive, and Emery. So give a warm welcome and a receptive heart to Dr. Chris Green. The Jesus of the Gospels is not the Jesus we've imagined. We've learned to picture him as nice and wholesome, approachable, never aloof, a marvelous wonder worker and a simple, and most importantly, politically neutral, teacher of simple truths. But in fact, the Jesus of the Gospels is a difficult, demanding figure, a troubled and troubling presence. In Mark's Gospel, especially, Jesus is mystifyingly odd and volatile, tense as a cord, waiting to be struck. As Mark tells it, Jesus is usually met with one or another of three responses. The crowds are enthralled by him. 
The priests and Pharisees are upset with him, mostly by his influence over the crowds, and the disciples are devoted to him. But all these responses are rooted in profound confusion and misapprehension. The disciples are conflicted, impressed like the crowds, but even more disturbed than the religious leaders. And Mark apparently believes that this conflictedness is precisely what Jesus intended for them, and perhaps also for us all along. Mark's was likely the first of the four Gospels to have been written between 30 and 40 years after Jesus was executed. It opens without a lengthy preface or genealogy. Instead, readers are given a terse, politically charged title, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then presented with a montage of events from the first days of Jesus' ministry. By the end of that montage, it is clear that Jesus' fame is spreading fast. In today's reading, which we've just heard, Jesus has left the synagogue and left the adoring crowds, following his disciples to Simon's house. There, he heals Simon's mother-in-law immediately, without prayer or, or ceremony. And again, the news of his exploits spreads quickly. By sunset, the house is thronged. Mark says, the whole city was gathered around the door. Deep into the night, Jesus works to heal the sick and to deliver the oppressed. And in the morning, he escapes into the desert to pray. His disciples hunt him down, and they urge him to return with them. They tell him, everyone is searching for you. He ignores them. He says they have to leave Capernaum because his message must be shared with others in the neighboring villages as well. Mark is an exceptional storyteller, a master of suggestive detail. Earlier in this opening chapter, he tells the story of Jesus' temptation in a single thrilling sentence. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The reference to the wilderness and the 40 days draws up from the deeps of our memories the stories of Moses and Elijah. The detail about the wild beasts suggests that Mark understands Jesus as the last Adam, the one who comes to heal the sick creation, to make the blessing flow as far as the curse is found. The reference to the ministering angels summons the story of Jacob's vision of the ladder, revealing that Christ is, for Mark, the hidden sight of God's sudden inbreaking. So, given Mark's skill, we should be careful not to ignore the smallest details in today's passage. We're told the people brought to Jesus everyone in the village who was ill or oppressed at sundown. This is a reference not to the end of the day, but to its beginning. The Jewish day actually begins at sundown. Remember, in the creation story, we're told the evening and the morning were the first day. This reference also recalls the Exodus story. Israel, as you may remember, goes out from Egypt at sundown, at the beginning of the day, not the end. We're told that Jesus healed many of them, but perhaps not all. We're told that Jesus left in the early morning, while it was still very dark, to pray in a deserted place. We're told that his disciples hunt him down. All of these details anticipate the end of Mark's gospel and the end of Jesus' life, which it tells. In the end, Jesus is deserted by everyone, dies alone in the dark, crying out after a God he can no longer find. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark's gospel, these are Jesus' only words from the cross.
Perhaps the most important detail in our passage, though, is Jesus' silencing of the evil spirits. Mark says he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is guarding a secret. Again and again in this gospel, Jesus forbids the crowds and his disciples from speaking about who he is and what he has done and what he means to do. But there are strange inconsistencies in Jesus' actions. He sometimes allows the demons or those he has healed to speak. At the beginning of chapter 5, for example, he delivers the man who had been known as Legion, who was likely a Roman soldier, a legionnaire, now haunted by the horrors of war. Strangely, Jesus allows the platoon of demons to speak as well and commands the healed man, once he is delivered, to return home and to share his story with his friends. But at the end of that same chapter, on the opposite shore, Jesus returns to his usual pattern. He raises a synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead and then strictly forbids the few who have witnessed it from speaking about it. What is Jesus doing here? Is there a method in this madness? If we read uncarefully, it may seem Jesus wants to keep outsiders from knowing his identity and mission. But on closer inspection, we realize this cannot be his reasoning. The gospel is split into two parts, and the hinge is Peter's confession, which comes in chapter 8. After asking what the crowds are saying, Jesus asks his disciples directly, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the only one of the disciples to risk a response, answers, you are the Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus praises Peter for this answer. But in Mark, Jesus offers no praise. He orders Peter and the others not to breathe a word to anyone. He does, however, begin to speak openly about his mission now. And no sooner has he done this than Peter, who has just made the confession, takes him aside, rebukes him, and corrects him. In this story, Mark is confronting us with a hard truth. Those who know Jesus best are the first to deny him, the first to interfere with his mission. Insiders, not outsiders, are the ones who need to be saved. And they need to be saved precisely because they think they understand the secret that has been shared with them and not with others. The controversies about the various endings of Mark's gospel tell this same story. Originally, the gospel almost certainly ended at 16.8 with this strange line, So the women went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But the first Christian scribes were frightened by this ending. They added verses to bring the gospel to a lighter, less disturbing end. Aren't you and I sometimes tempted to do the same? Aren't we tempted to tidy up what God has left messy? To touch up what seems to us like unfinished work? The gospel won't let us forget. God works in the dark, but we are afraid of the dark, and we are afraid of God. So we are desperate for light, even artificial light, anything that will clear away the shadows. Rowan Williams, in his book on Mark's gospel, argues that it was written to reinforce a faith in the God who does not step down from heaven to solve problems, but who is always already in the heart of the world, holding the suffering and the pain in himself and transforming it by the sheer indestructible energy of his mercy. And that, Williams believes, is why what Jesus says and does in Mark's gospel is so shocking and bewildering. 
not only for the characters in the story, but for us as its readers. Jesus works miracles, sure, but he does so in ways that make clear that miracles are decidedly beside the point. Jesus teaches, but he does so in Mark's gospel, mostly so his hearers, and especially his disciples, will not understand what he means. Why does he do this? If we trust him, and if we trust Mark, we must assume he does it because there is no other way for us to learn the truths we need to learn. Williams, again, I think gets this exactly right. Jesus in Mark's gospel appears as someone wrestling with the difficulty of communicating things that are not communicable in words, communicating that they have to think again about how God works and to prepare themselves for greater and greater shocks in understanding what God is doing. I'm tempted to think, William says, that one reason Mark's gospel has so little teaching in it, unlike Matthew or Luke or John, is that Mark wants to draw our attention away from conventional teaching. He wants to tell a story and present situations that bring us up short. He doesn't want us to go away discussing the interesting details about Jesus' teaching or the poignant stories Jesus tells. He wants us to focus on the person of Jesus and on the relation we are meant to have with him, knowing that only in that relation, a disturbing, unsettling relation often, does radical change come about. So it makes sense that there is in this gospel secrets, silences, misunderstandings. And this is a gospel which on every page carries this warning to us. We don't have it yet. We don't get it yet. Perhaps I think this is where some of us have gone wrong. We've imagined that knowing Jesus is an easy affair. We've imagined that the truth is simple and that the truer something is, the simpler it is. We've imagined that God's work is always obvious. And we've imagined that we know the secrets of our own hearts and that we can therefore always be trusted with the truth. We need God to save us from what we've imagined. We need to be saved not so much from darkness, but from our fear of it and our use of false lights in the midst of it. The other readings today teach this same truth, I think. Isaiah, in a familiar passage, declares, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. But then Isaiah immediately insists that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Do you hear the paradox? God's power is unlimited. His strength is inexhaustible. And precisely for that reason, God does not do everything at once. And what he does do, he does in ways true to our creatureliness. He does not violate the integrity of our minds and hearts and bodies. We are tempted to think that if God were all-powerful, we would never have to wait for his will to be done. But in truth, that's not God's power. God's power, revealed in Jesus, is a power at work precisely in our waiting, in our powerlessness. As Paul himself comes to learn late in his life, God's strength is made perfect only in our weaknesses. 
The psalm for the day, Psalm 147, also celebrates God's uncreated power and wisdom and then concludes with a song to God's slow work. He covers the heavens with clouds and prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow upon the mountains and green plants to serve mankind. He provides food for flocks and herds and for the young ravens when they cry, the psalm says. Once again, we are reminded God's power is revealed not only in the miraculous, but in the natural, the ordinary. Grace comes not in dramatic interventions from above, but secretly from within. God creates deep in us an inner creative fire that slowly lights up our lives from the inside and spreads out from us without our awareness of it to our neighbors. This is why in today's epistle, Paul insists that ministry requires becoming weak with the weak rather than trying to make them strong. This is good news, even if it does not seem like it. Jesus, Mark wants us to know, is difficult, but his difficulty is good for us. God does this not to humiliate us, but to free us from the fear of humiliation, which controls so much of what we do and fail to do. In Orwell's famous short story, a white officer kills an elephant, even though he knows he should not do it. He kills it precisely because he says he cannot imagine who he is if he is not playing the part of the strong white man in the face of the so-called natives. Before he kills the elephant, he has a moment of almost clarity, almost realizing the truth. He says to himself that if he decided not to kill the elephant, the crowd would laugh at me. And he almost realizes the truth in saying to himself that his whole life in India has been one long struggle not to be laughed at. He senses that he has worn a mask and that his face has grown to fit it. Mark reminds us that Jesus intends to strip our masks away so our faces can find their true shape. Mark's gospel ends with the disciples paralyzed in fear. The women flee from the tomb, silent and terrified. But we do not need to be paralyzed. Bonifer taught his students that the aim of ministry is to make it possible for others to pray. And today's reading shows us Jesus at prayer. Notice, he does not pray for the strength to work the miracles. He prays after that work is done. And he prays in secret, in a desolate place. We do not know what he prays about. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus never teaches his disciples the prayer we know as the Lord's Prayer. We are told many times that he prayed, always in solitude, but only at the end are we told anything about what he says in prayer. In the garden, he prays for a change to come, a change he fears is impossible. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. On the cross, Jesus prays another prayer, a line, a single line, a question to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Astonishingly, the Roman centurion who sees the way Jesus dies and hears his scream realizes at last what no one in the gospel has realized up to this point. Truly, this man was God's son. Paradoxically, then, it is in the throes of prayer, in sorrow, fear, agony, and uncertainty, that Jesus becomes recognizable to others and his mission is accomplished for them. 
questioning God, Jesus is shown at last unquestionably to be God. And that is the kind of prayer to which you're called, to which I'm called. In his last teaching in the gospel, Jesus instructs his disciples that the end is coming, and he directs them, pray that it does not come in winter. He is teaching them that some things cannot be changed. God is coming. The truth will out. But there are things that can be changed, that we should want to see changed. But only in prayer, praying not to Jesus, but with Jesus, can we learn the difference. Asking God to change what can be changed, we begin to see the difference between God and everything else, between the one who is unchangeable and everything that is changing and needs to be changed. And in that way, we learn that Jesus is not who we've imagined him to be. He's better, infinitely, immeasurably better. Jesus is good in ways we never could have dreamed. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.